We're moving along through the third quarter of this curriculum. God is faithful. We're seeing that emphasized in multiple ways. Before we get to today's material, though, let's review a little bit of last week's material. Last week we talked about Job. When approximately did Job live? Don't give me the year, but you can tell me, you can describe. Job must have lived a long time ago, to be sure. Between what and what? It has to be after. It has to be after the flood. It has to be after Babel because of, of certain aspects of the of the text, like the tribal distinctions. But it has to be before, or at least around the same time as, as you said, Rob Abraham. So Job appears between. Moses and Babel, probably right before or at the same time as the patriarchs. Now, we've talked about Job and his suffering and his circumstances. How did God arrange Job's circumstances to give testimony to God's worth? That's something we talked about last week. How was God going to give testimony to his own worth through Job? And why is that testimony to God's worth, that Job doesn't curse God? Well, you remember that we talked about the idea that... uh, We talked talked a little bit about this, and I'll, I'll say more about it now, but we can give the short answer by saying this. God is going to show that even if a righteous man loses all his temporal blessings, even his own health, the Lord will be enough for him. A righteous man, someone that God himself is upholding, the Lord will be enough for him. That was the testimony that Job's suffering and Job's life was going to give about God. Now to clarify this thought a little bit further, it's not as if Job was going to prove or disprove God's worth. Because God's worth is objective, right? It doesn't need man to prove it. People, when they sin or when they live without God, they are denying God's worth all the time. But God is nonetheless completely worthy. Man's rebellion does not prove God's worth to be lacking. And even if Job had abandoned God, it would not have proven God to be less than he is. It would have only proven Job to be a desperately wicked sinner in need of rescue, because that's the way it is for all of us, right? As Romans 3, 4 says, let God be found true, and every man, or though every man be found a liar. So Job was not going to prove or disprove God's worth. However, God arranged special testimony of his own worth to come through Job. And that's why God mentions Job to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? And that's why he commended Job as the most righteous man on earth. Satan hoped for an opportunity opportunity to give negative testimony about God's worth, to defame God by causing even the most righteous person to abandon God. But God instead designed for Job to be a clear testimony of God's worth, of God's sufficiency for the righteous. God is enough. When Job's friends arrived to comfort him, the group soon got into a debate. What was the debate about? Exactly. Why is this happening to you, Job? But this debate was misguided from the start. Why?
Okay, well, there's certainly that. Job's friends all come up with the same answer, and that is, this is happening to you because you're in sin. You're in unrepentant sin. You've been living in habits of sin, patterns of sin, and therefore God is judging you. That is, of course, wrong. But even if, but even if we consider what Job was saying, no, I haven't been in patterns of sin. I haven't been unrepentant of any sin. I'm innocent. Therefore, I want to know why this is happening. Even Job's response is misguided. The whole idea of trying to understand why this was happening to Job was misguided because there's no way for them to know. Right? Unless God specifically revealed it to them, there would be no way for them to figure it out. They couldn't figure it out just from Job's circumstances. As we said last week, God only communicates to us through his word. We, we are not supposed to, nor can we, look at our circumstances and say, that must be what God is telling me. God's never promised to do that. Job did maintain his innocence, and he was right in doing so. He didn't claim sinlessness, but he confessed that his life was a pattern of righteousness and not a pattern of sin. There was no unrepentant sins in his life that would warrant chastening or judgment that he could see. Perhaps provoked into it by his friends, Job therefore became suspicious of the justice, the wisdom, and the goodness of God, and he expressed even, a desire to meet with God and get an explanation. Well, God does meet with Job, but what's the explanation God gives? He doesn't give an explanation, right? What does he say instead? Where were you when I made the earth? Or to paraphrase God's barrage of questions, Job, I'm God. You're not. You have no right to question me. God does not need to show us how he is being good, just, or wise in any of our life situations for us to know that he is being good, just, and wise. As we explored the the latter part of last week's lesson, God is always doing good to his people. Romans 8 reinforces this for us specifically. God is always making us more like Christ and causing us to appreciate more of Christ. And that is our greatest good. And it is the source of our happiness. And God knows how to reward the righteous. We're going to see more about that today. But with Job, he showed us that, or he magnificently blessed Job at the end of Job's trial for Job's perseverance. And in the same way, he will magnificently reward us. So we look to Job, we look at his trial, we look at his trust in God. Even though he slipped in certain ways, his fundamental trust in God, and we are encouraged to persevere through our own trials. That's all I wanted to say about last week's lesson. Any questions or comments on that? Okay. Now we switch back. Switch back to Genesis. Switch over to a man who lived at the same time or may come right after Job, and that's Abram. We're going to spend the next four lessons on Abram, later called Abraham. This first lesson is simply on God's calling Abraham. To give you a little outline of, or a little indicator of what we're going to be exploring today, how did Abram respond to God's call? What was God's call? How did Abram respond to it? Why did God call Abram? To what did Abram ultimately look forward? If, he's, if Abram is responding to God, what was it foremost in his mind that was motivating him? And then how can Abram's response and thinking instruct us in how we ought to live? I think you're going to see today that there are going to be some parallels between this lesson and last week's lesson. 
We'll mainly be exploring Genesis 11, 27 to 12, 9 in today's lesson. Let's pray before I go on. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us now through your word. Help me to be able to explain. Lord, help us to be able to understand the same thing that Job and Abram understood about you. Lord, that is your preciousness. Oh God, I pray that, that you would speak. Help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and read this historical account of God calling Abraham. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 11. You remember that we've been in this passage already. The early part of this passage is the account of the Tower of Babel and the city of Babel, the building of that. And then after that, we get the genealogy that links Shem to Abram. And the passage that we're going to read picks up right after that. Kind of a long section because we're reading from one chapter into the next. So follow along with me. Starting in verse 27 in chapter 11. Verse 27. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Okay, we'll stop there. Let's make some observations on this long section of scripture. First, who are the relatives of Abram mentioned in this passage? There are a number of them, so you can just give me one. He's got his father. Who's his father? Terah. Terah's father. Who else? Yeah, Danielle. Lot. Lot, his nephew. Very good. And Lot is his nephew through Haran, who's his brother. Haran, however, as you see there, dies in Ur. So we've got Terah's father, Haran his brother, Lot his nephew. Who else? Nahor, also a brother. Who else? 
Abram's wife, who we also learn later is his half-sister. When he gets into one of those difficult situations, I think it's with uh, Abimelech, King Abimelech, and he says, just say you're my sister. And later he's interrogated, why did you tell me this? He's like, well, she really is my sister. We have the same father, but a different mother. So that's his wife and his half-sister. And one other person, we have Milcah, also Abram's relative. She's the wife of Nahor, so she's the wife of his brother, but she's also the daughter of Haran. So Milcah is both his sister-in-law and his niece. Here's a little family tree to help make this a little more clear. So you see some of those names, Milka over there on the right with Nahor and Haran. You may be noticing that these immediate relatives of Abram include married close relations. This shouldn't be too surprising to us, because in the years following Babel, as we said, families and tribes separated from one another and often only married within themselves. And we see that happening right here. Terah's descendants are marrying within their, within their tribe. Anyways, what little aside are we told about Sarai in this passage? She was barren. She had no child. And that's a big deal, as we'll see in later lessons. It was a big deal at this time to be barren. Now, Terah and his family go on a little migration. They intended to go from where to where, according to the text. From Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan. I'll show this to you with a map. Talk about these different locations. That's Ur there in the bottom right. And Canaan would be there on the left. Now, we've mentioned the city of Ur in this class before. Ur was apparently a decently large city in Chaldea, or southern Mesopotamia. People have done archaeological investigations of this ancient city, unearthing the base of a huge ziggurat there. I'd actually shown you a picture of that in another class. And archaeologists have discovered that religious worship in this city, this Ur, there may may have been another Ur, but this is probably the Ur that we're talking about. The worship in this city centered on a moon god named Nanasin. Nanasin. So a little bit of information about Ur. So they're traveling from Ur to Canaan, but they don't make it all the way to Canaan. They instead stop where? Haran or Haran. Now, this would have been a journey of about 600 miles from Ur to Haran. To give you a rough estimate of about how far that is, that's about as far as New Jersey is from South Carolina. So they're walking there, traveling there with their beasts and whatever they had. Now, Haran likely refers to what is later called Haran, with two R's, in Assyria, a city whose ruins are now in southern Turkey. Archaeological excavations have not uncovered much about ancient life in Haran. We do have some medieval things that we've discovered, but before that, hard to tell. It appears to have been a commercial hub on a trade route, however. Don't be confused, though. Don't try to link Abram's brother with this city, because they're actually spelled differently in Hebrew, even though they are spelled the same in our English translation. So they're not related. You also might be wondering, why did they go up and not simply west? Anybody tell me why? Okay, so they are following the river, the Euphrates River, likely, as they're traveling north, but it does seem like they're traveling a lot more miles than they need to. Why not just go west? Desert, right. 
it may also be that they're, they're following the trade route that, that goes along the river. But there's also a big desert right in between Mesopotamia and Canaan. And so not only is that difficult to travel through and perhaps dangerous for oneself, he has all his possessions with him too. They have all their possessions with them. So livestock might not, make the, might not survive the journey. So go north and then go down. Now Terah dies in Haran in Assyria at the age of 205. Pretty good age. And chapter 12 opens with a sudden command from God to Abram to travel again. Verse 1 relates several aspects of the command, as, as God speaks to Abram, several aspects of the command that might be difficult. What are some of the things that God brings up right before, or right when he's calling Abram, he says, you're going to have to do these things. He doesn't identify them as difficult, but if we think about them, I think they, we can say that they, they could be difficult. It's one of the things that he tells Abram he's going to have to do. Leave your relatives. Leave the people you know and the people that you've lived with for years, the people who have been your supports, your friends, and even your allies. Leave all of them. What else? Leave your country. Leave the land you know that you've settled in and that you've gotten used to. What else? Yeah, Danielle. Right. Go to the place that I will show you. I won't tell you now where you're going. Just move in this certain direction. In case you're wondering, wait, is, is that exactly what God is saying? Well, Hebrews 11.8, which we'll see a little bit later, says explicitly that when Abram set out, he did not know where he was going. And this is another difficulty with the journey. Go to the land that I will show you. I'm going to tell you what it is right now. You don't know exactly where it is right now, but I will show it to you. And then we also see there that he's told to leave his father's house. That's similar to saying to leave your relatives, but uh, it's, we see by comparing some of the details about Abram's age and Terah's age that Abram was not the oldest child. So when Terah died, one of his brothers then would have become, would have become head of the tribe or would have been the leader. But God is telling him, leave your father's house. You're no longer going to be following your father's or your older brother's leadership. You're not going to be under their direction or protection. You're going to leave that. And go to the place that I will show you. Now, those could be some difficulties. But God attaches some promises also to his command to leave. What are some of the promises? I'll make you a great nation. What else? I will bless you. What else? I'll make your name great. What else? Yeah, Diane. That's right. I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. In other words, people will be blessed or cursed depending on how they treat you. And then finally, what's the other promise? That's right. You are going to be the cause for all families on the earth to be blessed. In you will be a blessing that passes to everyone on earth. Now, those are some pretty big promises. Abram obeys God, and he leaves Haran. And how old is Abram when he does this? He's 75. Whom or what does Abram take with him, according to the text? He takes his wife, Sarai. Takes Lot, his nephew. And what else?
That's right. They took all the stuff that he had accumulated and the people that he had accumulated. They had acquired a number of servants in Haran. This indicates they probably spent a good amount of time there because he had acquired possessions and servants in that city. Abram travels to Canaan, specifically to Shechem, a Canaanite town about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. You can see that there at the the top of all those names on the map. This would have been a trek about 400 miles. So 600 plus 400, almost about 1,000 miles now. 400 miles, think between South Carolina and Florida. That'd be about the distance. Abram arrives at Shechem, and then the Lord appears to Abram. What additional promise does God give Abram when he arrives in Shechem? That's right. To your descendants I will give this land. And we also got that little detail. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. So we know that there are people already living there, specifically the Canaanites, who are going to be the enemies of Israel. It says the Canaanites were already there, and then God makes this promise. To your descendants, not the Canaanites, I will give this land. What does Abram do in response? He builds an altar. He builds an altar there. Verse 8 says that Abram built another altar when he arrived near what would later be Bethel, a a town, city, seven miles north of Jerusalem, so getting closer to where Jerusalem would be. And there Abram also called upon the name of the Lord. Called upon the name of the Lord. Now, we've encountered that phrase before. What does that exactly mean? Well, to give you a little bit of an idea... It is used other places in the Old Testament, even in the Psalms. Here are two places where we see that phrase. Psalm 105.1. Psalmist writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Psalm 116.3-4 says, The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I beseech you, save my life. So we see that that phrase is actually often connected with people literally calling upon the name of the Lord, praying to God, either in thanks or in supplication. So Abram pitches his tent near Bethel, but he doesn't stay there. Where does he go go next? At the very end of our passage. Not Nineveh. The Negev, right. So this would be the southern area of Palestine. So you see him moving to where the word Negev is there. We also see he's going to make it into Egypt, but that's not in our passage. Okay, let's ask some interpretive questions of this passage now. Why did Terah leave Ur with Abram to go to Canaan? It says Terah left Ur, he was going to go to Canaan, and he took Abram and his family with him. Why did Terah leave? Tough question because the text doesn't tell us, right? We don't know why, why Terah left. However, we do hear this in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. This is where Stephen is making his defense before the Sanhedrin, and he's reminding the religious leaders there of a little history. And part of the reminder comes in these verses where Stephen says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. 
From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. So, according to Stephen, when did God first call Abram? Or where, rather? Before he was in Haran. That would be in Ur, when he was in Mesopotamia. Or the land of the Chaldeans. Whatever reason Terah might have had to move, he probably was aware that his son wanted to go to Canaan. Needed to go to Canaan. Because God first called Abram, actually, in Ur. Now, why do Terah and Abraham, or Abram, settle in Haran, then? If God called him to, to go, and they eventually were supposed to get to Canaan, why do they stop in Haran? Again, the text doesn't tell us. It might be that Abraham was hesitant to depart from his family, He was content to live with his family in Haran. They didn't want to go any farther, so he didn't want to go any farther. And the call of Abraham does emphasize Abram's need to separate from his kin. Leave your relatives. Leave this country. Leave your father's house. But it might not be for a cowardly, non-faith-believing reason that they stop in Haran. Maybe Terah fell ill. and He wasn't able to go any further, and Abraham wanted to stay with him. Terah does die in Haran. Or maybe God had not yet instructed Abram to go any further. Because after all, the words of the command to leave say, go to the land which I will show you. Perhaps God hadn't given him any further direction at that point. So we can't say for sure why they stopped in Haran. It may not necessarily have been for a bad reason. But they stay there for a little while. Then Abram with Lot, does go to Canaan. But even after arriving in Canaan, Abram keeps moving around. He goes to Shechem, then Bethel, then to the Negev. Why? Why is he always moving? We can get some idea in answering this question. Why might Abram be always moving? Was that Armana? That's right. We're aware especially because of what we see later in Genesis, that Abram's particular wealth is his livestock. He's someone who's taking care of lots of animals. And animals, if you're, if you're taking care of lots of livestock, you have to keep finding pasture for them. So people who have a lot of animals, they often live in tents, and they keep moving from place to place, which is what we see Abram doing. Now, there could be other reasons, too. Maybe God was telling him to keep on moving, though we don't see that specifically in the text. Maybe it's because of the famine that's coming. We'll see that in the end of chapter 12. Maybe it's because Abram wanted to see more of this land that God had promised to his descendants. But certainly, as a livestock owner, he's going to be paying attention to finding good pastures. Here's another question. Was Abram a pagan idolater when God first called him? Or did he already believe in God? Yeah, Steve. Or or are you going to answer that question? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, that's a good observation, Steve. We can't say for sure what Abram believed, but likely he was a pagan when God first called him. And that's 
partly for the reason that Steve just mentioned. Certainly in this text, we don't hear anything about Abram being a righteous man. It's not like, and there was a righteous man named Abram, and God called him. No, no, we don't have that. We noted that Ur, where he first started out with Terah, was a pagan city. We know from archaeological excavations that they were serving a false god. And just as Steve mentioned, in Joshua, Joshua says this to the people of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This is Joshua 2, 2 to 3, by the way. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, from ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. So God, through Joshua, reminds the people of Israel that their forefathers, Terah included, served foreign gods. And God makes a distinction. He says, I called Abram out of that. I called Abram and his descendants out from that way of living. So Abram was likely an idolater, just like the rest, before God called him. So then, why did God call him? Why did God choose Abram? Why should Abram receive such blessings from God And why should his descendants receive them? What do you think? Yeah, right? It's got to be simply God's grace. It pleased God to do so. God was not obligated. God did not need to. But it pleased God to show grace to Abraham. It pleased God's ultimate purposes. Abram did nothing to merit God's call or God's blessings. Abram was a wicked idolater just like the rest of his family and just like all his neighbors. Probably. But God decided to show undeserved favor to Abram and through him to all the world, including us. From Abram, God was going to bring forth a special people. A people for God's own personal possession a holy people, a kingdom of priests, witnessing to and interceding for all the peoples of the earth. God was by no means obligated to do this, but it pleased him to pour out undeserved love on some, on some people, and in this way to show forth his glory. And you know that this is just like us. Why does God love you? Why has God seen fit? Why has God seen fit to bless you by revealing salvation to you? Was it because was it because you had merited merited it somehow? No, of course not. You and I were hopelessly in sin and darkness just like the rest. Whether we were obviously sinners or whether we were self-righteous. But it pleased God to show grace to you to show love to you, to show care for you, and to mark you out as his possession, to show his glory. We see that in Abram. Abram responds to God's call in Haran, and even in Ur, with obedience. But why? Why did Abraham obey? Was that Steve? faith, right? He believed God. We haven't heard the critical verse yet. It's coming. In Genesis 15, Genesis 15, 6 says, then he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord, and God reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. By faith, 
Abraham believed God's promises and therefore obeyed God's commands. His faith, too, was a gift from God to Abraham. Because Abraham believed, he obeyed. But was it that Abram was simply excited about the, these specific blessings that God had promised? Wow, I'm going to get many descendants, a great name, blessed life, a land to call my own. Was that Abram's ultimate motivation? Was that what he ultimately looking toward? Lest we get confused, the New Testament has something to say about this. Let's actually turn over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 16. We're going to hear a decisive account of what really motivated Abram. Hebrews 11, 8 to 16. Just some background here. You may remember the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians undergoing persecution. Many of them have or are thinking about renouncing faith in Jesus and simply returning to the old Jewish ways. Chapter 11, the hall of faith, is a call to persevere by looking to the examples of many Old Testament saints who persevered by faith. Abram, called Abraham here, is one of those saints. So let's read what Hebrews says about him in these verses, starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, by going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that, They were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Notice with me a few things about this New Testament text. Which promise of God to Abraham is highlighted by the author in verses 8 to 9? It's one of the promises that we had seen in Genesis. That's right. He was going to receive some physical land, a promised land, an inheritance. But for what does verse 10 say Abraham was waiting? Yeah, Danielle. Yeah, so this is a unique city, a city which has foundations. 
He was promised a land, but what he was really waiting for was a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now, this city is contrasted with some living conditions specifically mentioned in verse 9. What were Abram's living conditions in verse 9? Not a city. Tents. Tents in a foreign land. Did Abraham receive the promised land while he was alive? No, the text says explicitly that he didn't. You see in verses 11 to 12, a reference to God's promise to multiply Abraham's descendants, to make a great nation of him. Did Abraham receive this promise while he was alive? No. He only saw the very beginning of it with one child, the child of promise. Instead, look at verse 13. While Abram and his next descendants did not receive the specific promises, those specific promises, what did they do? They did two things. They welcome them from a distance. They say, I know this is coming. I don't see it. I might not even see it in my lifetime, but I welcome it from a distance. And what else? They do die in faith. What do they confess themselves to be? Strangers, right? Exiles. They welcome the promises from a distance, but they confess themselves to be strangers. They admit what they really are. I'm a stranger and an exile on the earth. And then verse 14 to 16 explains this further. Though Abraham was grateful for the earthly promises, what was it that Abraham was really looking toward? heavenly city, a heavenly country. It's called a couple different things in these last few verses, but a country of his own. He's promised land, but he wants a country of his own, a better country, a heavenly country. That is, the country where God dwells. So this is an important point from the writer of Hebrews. When we talk about why did Abraham obey God, yes, it's because he had faith. But what motivated his faith? What was the chief object, or what was the the great valuable treasure that he was looking towards? Was it just the promises of earthly blessing? No, it cannot merely be that, since Abraham didn't even receive many of those earthly blessings while he was alive. What motivated Abraham was the sweet prospect of going to God's country, God's city. Or to say it another way, the most exciting part of the promise that Abraham gets in Genesis 12 is the one making the promise. God has revealed himself to me. He has set his undeserved favor on me. There is a way that I can know God and one day be with him. That's what excited Abram most of all. God did did give Abram great earthly blessings, but Abram saw that there was much greater treasure ahead. And it's for that reason that he was obedient. This too ought to be very instructive for us. We need to take seriously the exhortation of Hebrews 11, specifically regarding Abraham's example, and to borrow some questions from the activity section of the student guidebook for our class. You can look on pages 65 to 66 if you have those books. I want us to consider some questions now. I'm going to pause between these questions to give you some time to think. But are you like Abraham? 
are you like Abraham? Would you like to be? Are you afraid to leave the familiar country and family of the world? Do you see a better country before you? The place of, that where, where God dwells? Colossians 3, 1-5 says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Do you seek the things above, as Abram did? Is your mind set on things above? Is it set on Christ? Or, on what things of this world have you set your mind? On what things of this world have you set your hope? Your happiness? If you, to, if you were to embrace the lifestyle of one of these God-inheriting heroes of faith, becoming like an exile and a stranger on the earth, what would change in your life? If your lifestyle was to be an exile and a stranger, how would it look different from the way it does now? Do you believe what God says about himself? Do you believe that God's promises are true? And that he is faithful? Do you believe that God has the best for you in mind when he forbids you from certain sins? Do you believe that all of God's ways are sweet. Truly, heaven-mindedness, eternity-mindedness, it ought to set us apart from the people of the world. God has shown us by his spirit that there is another country, a better one, where he is. Our attitude while we're on the earth must not be as everyone else. Have as much fun as you can before it's all over. No, our attitude ought to be, let's prepare and look forward to the happiness that awaits us. The much greater happiness. The Bible's over and over again telling us about this. Lay up treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. Pursue deeds that will result in your joy and your reward when Jesus judges all of your works. Not those things which will simply burn up and prove no profit to you 
when you see him. Believe God that the happiest life lived is the one given up for Christ's sake and the gospel's. The worst life lived is the one that sought to squeeze every ounce of happiness from the world and its passing pleasures. If you really love your life, if you really love and want to have the best life, then you will give it up for Christ's sake. That's the enjoyable life. Abraham understood this, though he slept at times. He grew in his understanding, just as we do. But he understood fundamentally, and we need to understand fundamentally, that the heavenly country is the country that's really the one we should get excited about, that we should look forward to. Now, we've got a lot more to say about Abram, but that's the main message for today. Questions or comments? Yes, Steve. Yeah, that's a really good observation, Steve. Just to repeat it a little bit. Shem was alive when Abram was alive. Shem was still alive. And yet you have so much of the earth that had already moved away from God into idolatry, into forgetting God, into worshiping false gods. And just as Steve said, this is just another testimony to man's great need for rescue, man's heart that is so rebellious against God. And it's the pattern of Genesis, right? Cain... Adam's own descendant abandons God and murders. And so do his descendants. So again, more the sweetness of God's grace and calling out Abram and calling out any of us. Uh, Any other questions or comments? Let's take a, a look at a few more application questions related to today's lesson. You can find these in your workbooks on pages 67 to 68 if you have those. I have five questions I want to look through with you. First, we know that God has promised to reward those who place their faith in him. When can we expect to receive those rewards? Yes, Carol. That's right. That's right. Will we be rewarded on earth? Maybe. But not in full, to be sure. We saw that Job was greatly rewarded for his perseverance, right? And that was while he was still alive. And we do receive various rewards in small ways while we're on the earth. But as Carol said, our great reward, our ultimate reward, our complete reward will not be received here. It's to come. It will be realized when we go to be with God. Our inheritance is in heaven. We are strangers and exiles on the earth. 
Therefore, let's prepare for that reward. Let's look forward to it. Let's increase it. Suffering and striving for Christ in this world will increase our heavenly reward. That's why we get those motivations from our Lord. He says, lay it for yourselves treasure in heaven. We may receive some in this earth, but our ultimate reward, reward is to come. Number two, have you heard the expression, you are so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Is this a biblically grounded idea in light of what we've been studying today? Is it possible to be so heavenly minded that you become unprofitable while you're living on the earth? Yeah, Paul. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great answer, Paul. This is a misguided statement. Those who claim to be heavenly minded but actually don't do any good on earth or do little good on earth, they're not actually heavenly minded, as Paul was just saying, because heavenly mindedness means that you love the Lord with all your heart and you love your neighbors yourself. It's essential that we all be heavenly minded, super heavenly minded. That's what it is to be a believer. We cannot be too heavenly minded. We are rather, our problem is that we're not enough heavenly minded. And we excuse not being heavenly-minded by calling it spiritual, by calling it heavenly-minded. And this is the problem that we see with some of the monastics, right? Their, their pursuit of spirituality, they, they move themselves away from people in the world or ministering in the world. That's a false spirituality. That's not real spirituality. It's misguided. As we understand more about the things of God, we will be moved to respond to God's call to serve him and those around us while we're here on earth. So no, heavenly-mindedness is earthly good. Number three, why is it so important to understand God's attribute of faithfulness as we seek to follow him in faith? Why is it so important that we understand God's attribute of faithfulness if we're going to obey him? Yes, Donna. Right. We certainly are reliant on God for many things. He's the one who has to sustain us. He has to empower us. But why can we trust God to do those things? And what if God says, sorry, I'm not going to help you today? I'm not going to give you the things that you need. Are we going to be able to be obedient if God is like that? No, of course not. Our obedience must believe in the faithful character of God. If we can't believe God's character, then we can't believe his promises. And if we can't believe his promises, then how are we going to be motivated to obey? It's God who makes the reality of those promises so clear and also who shows us his own character. Scripture has been written to warn us and encourage us that we can and must believe God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God does keep his promises. We've already seen two huge examples of that. 
and Abram and Noah, but also to some extent with Adam and Eve. What were you going to say, Steve? That's the ultimate thing, right? Thanks for mentioning that, Steve. When we talk about our needs, even spiritual needs, it's God who, it's only God who can supply those things, but God knows our needs better than we do. Uh, I just had a thought, and now it's escaping me. Oh, it's simply that, as Steve was saying, our ultimate need is for God, right? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he quotes the scriptures to the devil, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. That's your ultimate need. And you can trust that that's going to be sufficient for you because God is faithful. Two more questions. How does the world react to the idea of storing up treasures in heaven rather than seeking to build fortunes and seek pleasures here on earth? The world does think completely the opposite, doesn't it? How else do they react? Yeah, Danielle. <laughs> yeah, they might see Christians as boring. You're no fun. Anything else? Yeah, Shane. And it's such a contrast to the way that the world thinks and the way that the world acts. Just to summarize your, com- your comment a little bit, that we do see uh, a theme throughout the Old Testament and I think throughout the scriptures, especially it's explicit in the New Testament, just that you have many people who are waiting for promises or who are just living temporary 
temporary lives. They haven't received their, their ultimate inheritance. They're living in tents. They're moving around. They're wandering in the wilderness. And that those are all proper metaphors to describe life as a believer. I was going to say something else. When we think about the world's... Uh, okay, your comment. Just a second, Greg. When we think about the world's response to this attitude of living... They probably think it's silly, wishful thinking. Why not pay attention to your feelings and acknowledge reality for what it is? This is all there is. You believe in a fantasy, and they may even be confused or offended by our attitudes. 1 Peter 4, 1-5 says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm, yourself, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Basically, you were living it up in all these ways with the Gentiles. But not anymore. Verse 4, And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So we are going to stick out. If you live as the way the scriptures tells you to live, as an exile and a stranger, you're going to stick out from the world. Let me get to Greg first, and then I'll get your turn. Good point, Greg. Just to repeat your comment. The idea your coworker was saying that, oh, it's because of this otherworldly mindedness, looking forward to the eternity, is that people commit terrorism, that Islamic fighters are blowing themselves up, and you're just like them. That's wrong in multiple ways, but yeah, that's the sentiment increasingly. Karen? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. That that worldly sentiment comes into the church and it becomes a best-selling idea, your best life now. It's all about the blessings that God can give you now. And of course, that's just a false gospel. It's the health and wealth gospel. But yeah, you're totally right. One more question as we finish today. In what ways are you and I failing to set our minds on things above? And how can we seek to change this attitude? This is something for you to contemplate on your own, but realize that the world is constantly trying to press you into its mold. Don't think you're not being influenced or you're not prone to the influences of the world. 
If you think you're not influenced, that's just proof that you've been influenced. That's why we have to wash our minds with the word. So in what ways are we not setting our minds on things above? What ways are we setting our minds on things above, and how can we do that more? Last thing I want to do in today's class is close with a few observations on our memory verse. You know our memory verse, Acts 17, 26 to 27. Try and come up with different ways to help us remember this. And one of the things I like to do is just make observations. Notice things about the verse because it helps you remember it a little bit more and also helps you understand the verse a little bit more. I've noticed, and perhaps you have too, that you can break this verse down into to different parts schematically. About five parts. You have one subject who's doing the actions in this verse. That subject is God. He. He has made. And God has done two actions. And they're the first two parts of this verse. God has made and he has determined. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So God has done two things. Those are the first two parts of this verse. But then we get the purpose of him doing those things. That's part three. Why have you done these things, God? Well, so, so that they should seek the Lord. That was the purpose in God doing, doing those actions. Making one blood, determining their pre-appointed times and boundaries. It's so that they should seek the Lord. And the last two parts of this verse, they are modifying phrases describing more about God's purpose. God set the boundaries in the hope that they might grope. The people who have been set in these different places, they might grope for God and find him. And this is not a useless hope. Because God truly is not far from each one of us. So we've got one subject doing two actions that have far-reaching implications for all of us. And what was the purpose? So that we should seek the Lord in the hope that we'll find him because he's not far from each one of us. Anyways, just some things to help you think about that verse a little bit more. Memorize it with me, please. We'll have a chance to memorize it until June 28th. That's our last lesson of the quarter, the third quarter. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we really do need you. We need you in so many ways. We need you to show yourself to us. We need your spirit to work in us. We need you to sanctify us, grant us repentance, because we see where your word calls us to go, but unless you actually enable us to get there, we are hopeless. God, I think it is the sentiment of everyone here. We want to be heavenly-minded. We want God to set our minds on the things above. But God, unless you enable us to do that, we cannot. And Lord, we know that you are sanctifying us. You are empowering us to do this because you've already brought us to salvation. If you've given us your spirit, then you will sanctify us. But God, sanctify us completely. Remove those idols and those deceptions from our minds that cause us to only intellectually say that you are a treasure. Only intellectually say, I hope in the next life. But then in our actions, God, clearly show that we only hope in this life. God, please be gracious to me and to us so that we do truly live like exiles and strangers on the earth. The most joyful life. Lord, this time is passing quickly. But, Lord, we know that because you are so sweet and compassionate, we are going to you. Thank you for pouring out your 
personal compassion on each one of us and you caring for us and you dying for us. And thank you, God, that you're bringing us to yourself. Let that be our heart drive. In Jesus' name, amen.